Welcome to the Evolving Enterprises podcast. We have stories of growth and transformation. Today, I'm delighted to introduce Ruby Lyon. Ruby has a really wonderful career as an actor. Ruby has been involved in a great many different activities, both on stage and on screen. One of the things that I was wanted to talk to Ruby about particularly is about winning over audiences. Welcome, Ruby. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's great to chat with you. So um, one of the parts that you're most famous for across the world is, of course, your your part in Shortland Street. And um, for, for those who don't know, we've got a fairly global audience. So there's quite a lot of people in Europe and um, some in America. Um, but Shortland Street is really your kind of national soap opera, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's the longest running show on New Zealand television and very well loved. You, if you talk to any Kiwi, they'll they'll know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, the equivalent of sort of Coronation Street or EastEnders in the UK or The Young and the Restless in America. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that must have been amazing. How, how old were you when you first got your part on Shortland Street? I, yeah, I was 20. Yeah, I was 20. It was quite a whirlwind experience. I'd worked with the casting director a lot before. And so they kind of already had me in mind when they had done the role. So it was one of those things where you expect it to be a whole like load of auditions back to back to back, but it was just one audition and then I got the role. So it was quite nice and painless. Wow. Gosh, that's amazing. It must have been quite something when you when you got that part. That must have been an absolutely wonderful feeling. Yeah, it was. It was. It's one of those things you just don't expect it to happen so easily. <laughs> so it was quite nice. <laughs> so, so who is your character? For, for those of us who don't, Short and Straight isn't really broadcast in the UK. Do you want to tell me just a little bit about your character, who, who you, what your role was? Yeah. Yeah, of course. So I played Ashley Whitley, which is a bit of a tricky name to say. And she was coming on as almost like a niece figure to one of the long running characters on the show. So she was a 16-year-old, so I was playing down a little bit, which was always fun. And she was like a bit of a, a metalhead, rebellious, only wore black, which was very far from me. So it was quite a challenge, but like great fun, great fun. And I worked a lot with some child actors who were playing, like teenagers playing teenagers. So it was great to like kind of be in, incorporated with the, you know, the age of the role that I was playing. Yeah, it, and I wasn't on for terribly long, but it was it was a, a, a pretty jam-packed plot line, should I say. Wow, wow. She, she died, didn't she, in the end, uh, Ashley? Yes. Yeah, yeah, she did die. They needed someone to die for the winter episodes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> classic, isn't it? And they said this one, you know, this especially when it's a child who dies um it's a, it's a catalyst for a lot of other characters to have you know plot lines go off in different directions and it worked out well for me because i wanted to move here to london so i was like sure i'll, I'll die that's all good <laughs> wow wow gosh <laughs> it's a real real whirlwind of a time so who who was your mentor your advisor because it must have been quite a challenge they were at 20 years old on sort of the nation's favorite soap opera and how did you sort of who helped you who who kind of helped you get into the swing of things yeah that's a great question because it's a very fast paced show it's i think at the time i don't know if it's still the case it was the fastest running show in the world a narrative show i mean 
they like write scripts very quickly, film very quickly. We film an entire episode in a day, which is unheard of. The time that I was there, I was only there for five months and I filmed over 100 episodes. And for context, there, I don't think there were even were 100 episodes in the entire show of Friends, the sitcom. So it was very, very quick. And because of that, it's like nothing else. So they have someone actually there ready to help new cast members because they're aware that it's a very heavy workload. So there was a lovely man who helped me out for the first like couple weeks. And then I was put in a dressing room with some of the other actresses and they really took me under their wing as well. And they're used to having a lot of new people on that show. So directors were also very welcoming and accommodating. One director in particular, Jackie Nairn, she was just like a, a wonderful person to have as my first director in something like this. Because she's she was an actor on the show herself. So she had a first-hand experience of the pressures of being on such a fast show like Shortland Street. That, that must have been a pretty immense pressure because, as you said, that if, a, if they've got the sort of the fastest production schedule in the world, there must be huge pressure to do it right first time. I guess that, you know, doing take after take is just not possible. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, they, they think the average amount of takes we would get would be like two or three. And any more than that, and we're falling behind schedule, most of the time we're trying to get it done in one take, which is crazy. It's crazy to to do that when you have extras, you have obviously all the crew, the cast. It's often very fast talking. There's a lot of dialogue. So it's very easy to stumble on your words. So you get very good at being ready to go as soon as they need you on set. Wow. Wow. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it sounds like a, a wonderful experience, an amazing experience, but also I should imagine a, a very, very kind of tough time to, you know, to sort of adjust to that schedule. I mean, how, how many hours did you work a day? Was it, was the day a sort of very long day? It wasn't actually too bad of a schedule. The main thing is that we started really early. The, like the earliest you would be in the makeup chair would be 5.30 in the morning. And usually that's when most of the actresses would be in the chair because it just takes longer for you know, hair and makeup and all those things, whereas the guys get to slide through pretty quickly. Yeah, so it start early, but there was a, a huge cast. It's classic for a soap opera to have a, a big cast, and it's a real ensemble show. So sometimes I would film one scene and be out of there and have the rest of the day, and sometimes I'll be there to the end of the day, which... From memory, the latest it would go would be 6.30 p.m. So it really, a lot of the time, felt like a nine-to-five job, which is very, very rare to find in the acting world because a lot of the time you have night shoots and working weekends and all sorts. But it, it was very much nine-to-five, Monday to Friday, which was actually amazing. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yes, it is. It's very unusual, isn't it? As you say, the the hours of uh, sort of uh, actors is a uh, it, it can be quite challenging, can't it? Sort of all the, the late late nights and um, yeah, amazing. Yeah. When you think about sort of engaging an audience, so engaging an audience is is you know, can can be a challenge for for anyone, but particularly behind a camera because you you don't have the feedback, you don't have that sort of anything. You've just got the, the camera sort of staring at you, and you you need to be able to sort of engage and draw an audience with you. What do you think are the kind of the, the best tips you have for for being able to engage an audience? It really is such a specific skill, and that's why I'm so glad you're bringing this up because. Often people think that acting, you know, you're engaging your audience and you can hear immediate feedback. 
And prior to Shortland Street, majority of my work had been theatre. So it was a whole new experience. And actually, it was Jackie now that director was mentioning before. She said, your crew is your audience. So there's obviously cameramen, there's lighting operators, sound guys, makeup artists, directors, etc. etc. They are the audience. And because it's a multi-camera show, it is very opened outwards. It's not like some shows where it's single camera, so it's a lot more insulated. So it was much easier to think of them as the audience. And I've heard that's the way that a lot of sitcoms work and comedy films, even single camera ones, think of the crew as your audience. You're trying to engage your audience, a person who's just passed the shoulder of the actor that you're talking to. So I found that really, really helped me. And because it can be really overwhelming to think, oh, there's millions of people watching this. No, there's there's all these people you're in their living room and they think of you as part of your family that they see every night and so it's much easier to just bring it back to the room that you are in the set that you are on and if you're doing a truthful job then it will relate through the camera to all those people on their screens yeah that's really good advice yeah to to work sort of within that room piece of advice I heard long ago is when you've got a big audience, you try to engage sort of the people at the front. You make contact, eye contact a lot with the people at the front, and then you can sort of look into the distance a bit. But effectively, if you can present to 50 people, then you can present to thousands is sort of the theory. Does, do you think that works? Do you think that's a good good kind of maxim? Because you've done quite a lot of work in theatre as well, haven't you? Do you think there's, uh, what's, the, what's the kind of the, the real art to being able to engage an audience, do you think, in a theatre? I think that's that's absolutely right. I've heard before that if you if you speak directly to one person, you're speaking directly to everyone in the room. Because if you break that fourth wall in a way, and if you make direct eye contact with one person, it can be jarring, but it can be such a useful tool, and it would make everyone in the audience feel that that discomfort, not just the person you're talking to. So that's absolutely true. And then. Also, as you say, in a, a theatre or like a bigger space, looking up and out so that it feels like your eyes could catch anyone in the room is always a good way to do it and to really throw your voice to make it feel like, you know, not that you're yelling, but intimate enough that it feels like you could be talking to one direct person, but using that projection to not make it feel like you're screaming at them, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's a really, yeah, really good advice. And you, you teach as well, don't you? So how does teaching, um, sort of kind of help you hone that kind of communication skill? Because there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of art to teaching, isn't there? To trying to find a way to get people to do things. Yeah. No, it's really taught me a lot about being a performer through teaching. That's one on one and also grouping, teaching a big group of, of people because it is very much about trying to engage a single individual within a group in particular I'll talk about because everyone learns differently right so you can't just teach a blanket way with blanket techniques because there will be some kids for instance who are visual learners and some are kinesic learners and and so what you're saying won't relate to everyone at all times of a lesson that's what really struck me is variation so whatever group you're talking to is varying how you speak, varying the length of the sentences, 
varying your pace, your pitch, all those sorts of things. It keeps people engaged and in tune, especially these days, because, you know, we've had 2020 lockdown. The attention span is a lot shorter than it used to be. So you've got to you've got to be able to keep people on their toes and listening and engaging. And I have found the best way to do that is just through variation. It's it's the best technique in my opinion. Yes, it's very true, isn't it? We are sort of struggling to make, you know, impression in such a short time in this this day and age, aren't we? It's quite interesting when you look back on some of the recordings from the past, and you don't have to go that far back, you know, 80s, particularly if you go as far as far back as the 70s, people had lots of gaps between, you know, the, the sort of pauses in speech were greater. The pace was slower. And actually, even when you look at shows that were supposedly fast-paced, you know, the, the shots came like, you know, every few seconds there's a cut. And when you think about, you know, a fast-paced show now, you know, there's a lot of cuts in the first second of a show. You know, they're really, it's amazing, isn't it, the difference? It's absolutely true. I remember I, I was in a production of Rocky Horror Show. So I watched a whole lot of, you know, B-rated science fiction films from anywhere from like 30 through to the 70s. And it was the pace. The pace was so slow. They really sat on each shot for a really long time and this was before 2020 and I still felt it quite hard to stay engaged but to audiences in those days it was thrilling it was exhilarating and there was so much tension whereas these days tension needs to be quicker we can't we'll fall asleep <laughs> mm, we will exactly that's right it's it's so important isn't it to maintain that pace and your your description of sort of, of teaching and, and helping people on that journey by by engaging them by varying pace and providing all the sort of different you know stimuli visual kinesthetic etc it's a really good and good, good reference so what as as a consultant what i spend quite a lot of my time doing is encouraging people to think about things differently um, we've got quite a few senior managers who listen to the podcast who are also trying to encourage people to do things differently, boards and um, shareholders, etc. And one of the things that I found has been immensely powerful is a kind of learning journey. And for each senior sort of individual I'm working with, I often have to put together a learning journey around how do we encourage them to see things a little bit differently? Because if they see things the same, then nothing's ever going to change. It's only through seeing things a bit differently that they will get a sense of, ah, is that how our customers see us? Oh, is that is that the way that our, our employees perceive us? It, it's a fascinating thing. And what you've described is very much the sort of style of the way that uh, I think we would all do this as, as consultants. So in, in kind of trying to encourage and, and get people to sort of become familiar with a new kind of topic do you have any sort of real tips to sort of to, to get them involved in it to sort of take an audience from being kind of you know just arriving in the theatre say to, to really beginning to engage with with a performance it's a tough thing isn't it it is tough it is so tough and obviously the subject matter is always a, a big playing factor as well but it is so interesting what you say about how it's like perception of the person and you know, when, when you're presenting, it's, it's like you're acting as well. Even if you fully believe in what you say, you're, you're performing from a script and you're, you've got a goal of how you want your audience to react to you. It really is a similar thing. And that's where I really do say that it's, it's all about emotional engagement and 
getting your audience to see you as a person rather than someone trying to sell you something, if that makes sense. It's like having a conversation and agreeing on a subject matter before telling them how they can, you know, fix it or whatever the goal is of the presentation. It's coming together as like audience and performer and agreeing on something. And that's where you can take them further. It's that trust of knowing that you're on the same page. You know, you're not making, they're not going to be thrown off track. They, They know what you're saying and they can be on the same page as you. Absolutely. And you can really sense when that's happened, can't you? This is, this is so true that there's, there's that kind of moment when trust kind of comes to the fore and people really sort of bond together a bit better. And there's a, yeah, there's, there's, that naturally happens with any meeting with any kind of new group who've, who've formed. And you, you kind of can sense that with a, you know, a larger audience that they're, you know, they're, they're sort of coming to, together to, you know, as, as, as a whole rather than, you know, just kind of at the beginning of an activity. Um, and as you say, the, the having the, the script and the, the goal, having that sense of where you want to go is, is so important. What do you think people often do that leads them to fail? There are many failures we can see when people engage to, to sort of try to engage an audience. I mean, Dragon's Den is a wonderful place to and see, see things fall apart. What, what sort of tips do you have to sort of avoid the pitfalls almost of, of losing your audience? I think a big one is confidence. It's tricky. It, it's a chicken and egg situation where to have confidence, you need to have confidence if you know what I mean. Like it can't, it's something that people struggle with, especially if you have stage fright or anything like that. But it's again, if, if an audience feels like they can trust you and they can watch you without feeling like you're going to fall apart and so they'll make them feel uncomfortable, they're easier to be reached. They're, they're more open and susceptible to hearing what you have to say. So confidence definitely is a big one and just being prepared, especially if you're someone who likes to do things on the fly and like to riff, that's absolutely fine, absolutely fine. But I always say prepare first. And if it means that when you get up there, if what you're riffing and what you're improvising doesn't go well, you can fall back on your material that you have and worked on and you know will be solid you're trying to improv something and it falls flat that's where your confidence will slip and that's where the the trust will break with your audience and they won't listen to you as much they may not respect you as much but sounds harsh but it's it's a very it's it's not a conscious judgment it can be for some people but it's just a natural reaction to watching someone pitch or perform who who falls apart a little bit. It's interesting you mentioned falling apart because I, I, I totally agree with what you say about the, the the preparation. I mean, I think when you when you watch anybody who's presented anything, as you said, it doesn't matter whether they're, they're very scripted or whether they're riffing a bit, but as long as they've got that kind of confidence in themselves to get through it and the ability to be able to sort of deal with any fluctuations, what I find I, I do when I'm preparing is I'm kind of finding the avenues where I don't want to go. I'll prepare a speech and then there'll be a sort of, oh, doesn't really work out that way, right? Try something else, try something else. And I'm almost kind of taking pathways out. I, for me, it's, it's about sort of where don't I want to go as I prepare? And then I've got in my head what the goal is. I've got those, those kind of waypoints as I, as I continue. But I think the, the, the sort of, the confidence is, is 
fascinating. And when you say sort of not falling apart, there are people engage an audience very well when they can really connect with their emotions. And sometimes people are talking about some tough subjects. So there's a a really well-known TED talk that uh, was given by Amy Cuddy. And she was someone who was in a a serious accident and had a brain injury. And essentially her her pathway in life just wasn't going to be there anymore. She was the clever kid and she was no longer the clever kid. And, And actually she talked very, very deeply from her soul about this. And she was struggling to hold back the tears, but it's so engaging. It really is because that's, that's her. That's the real, real her. And you, you, you can so understand her and sympathize with her. It's a, it's a difficult line to walk, isn't it? Because there'd be quite a few people who just couldn't deliver that. They would be sobbing their heart out and the whole thing would fall apart. That's absolutely true. It's something we talk about a lot in acting where you have to have your craft and your truth at the same time so it's like 50 percent of your brain if you're watching a film and there's an actor who's breaking down screaming crying there's always a 50 percent split in their brain 50 percent is fully in the character the emotions falling apart the other 50 percent is going right the camera is there i need to make sure i turn at this angle so they can see my face my the director is saying faster 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 this next line i forgot it last time i have to remember it this time remembering all the notes you always have to have the split of your brain so even that ted talk you mentioned she will be doing the exact same thing where she's fully engaged in the emotion and the passion and the words she's delivering but there will be a part of her who's like right I'm practiced at this. I know what I can do to keep it under control, but not completely make myself a robot because obviously you need that emotion. It's important. And remembering to stay on topic and what to do with your larynx and your voice and your body in order to help yourself continue. It's, it's a fascinating balance, as you say. It is. It is. Absolutely. And I should think, you know, one that takes quite a lot of doing. I mean, Ted, Ted obviously rehearsed their presenters a lot. The people who are presenting on TED have, have had um, quite a bit of coaching before they go up there. So, but equally, I think that one of the, one of the things that Ted have tried to do is to get that sort of presentation of a lifetime out of people. It's really, you know, it's, it's a million miles away from the, you know, the chief executives sort of standing in front of the board saying, well, it's been a tough year this year and, you know, <laughs> et cetera. <laughs> 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 that's true that's true <laughs> so that's that's really great advice that kind of keeping the as you say that 50 50 balance there's the the sort of the balance of being in character being able to deliver on that very kind of tough sometimes emotional piece and then remaining you know outside and that's clearly something that we need to practice a lot if we're going to going to sort of take a, a pathway that's um that's going to be quite that rule for us isn't it yeah yeah, it is very tricky. Like I remember when I first started performing on with screen work and there's something called continuity where you have to if you if you pick up a glass on a specific line during the scene, you have to pick up the glass on that exact line every single time. Otherwise, if you do another take and you do it at a different time, people watch you wonder, "Oh, she was holding the glass at that point, but then she a second later she wasn't." And it doesn't translate. And I remember at drama school thinking, this is impossible. How am I meant to be fully in character and being new and fresh for every take, but also being so robotic and tied down by having to pick up a glass the same time every every scene? But it's just practice. 
practice. You just have to practice it and it becomes muscle memory. And there's a part of your brain that remembers, oh yes, you picked up your glass at that time and it, and it can be done in a slightly different way, but it has to be done at that point every time. And it, it just, it, it's just a practice, like, like everything else in performing, you get used to it. Yes, it's true, isn't it? Absolutely. That you, yeah, practice does make a, a huge difference. I completely sympathize with you in that sort of early stage. I think it must, um, yeah, the, the challenges of trying to do something in exactly the same way each time must be immensely tough. Just one, one final question I've got. We're almost out of time, but what's your thinking about sort of practice and the way you can kind of bring this together? What's your, your kind of strategy for learning lines? Because I think all of us who deliver presentations kind of are guided by, you know, some cues and some things around. And the idea would be you know, not to have quite so many of those cues and simply to go along and deliver that presentation. But what's, what was the best strategy for kind of learning lines? What do you use? Well, that's an interesting one because obviously with a presentation, a lot of the time it would be like a monologue, wouldn't it? Where it's just you speaking. Whereas sometimes, I guess sometimes you would have a partner and so you're bouncing off each other. But it really, I think, does depend on whether you're, you have someone else to bounce off or not. Because I find for learning lines where there's multiple characters in the scene, I learn best by recording all the other people's lines and playing it so that I can speak my lines in between as if I'm talking to these imaginary people. But as for learning like a big speech, it's just taking section at a time and really like draw all over your notes. That's really important, in my opinion, to really think connecting thoughts. This comes after this because make it all make sense to you. Even if you have written it, sometimes it can feel completely foreign when you go to read it off by heart. And you're like, oh my gosh, did I even write this? So it's best to really write all over it and be like, okay, the reason reason this sentence comes up to this one is because of this great put that in a section and then this one in a section this one in a section it really helps just break it down and make it make sense for you i always say that notes are the best thing it doesn't need to make sense to anyone else it just has to make sense to you even if it's symbols pictures drawings anything to just make it make sense in your brain Absolutely. You're very right there. The, the more that you can sort of make sense of the notes that you've got and try and find the, the links through to them, the, the, the better. And I think that's, that's so, so important. I remember I, I was once working with someone who used to try to write the simplest form of, um, sort of kind of way of memorizing people on the back of their business cards. And, um, he, we, we were, with a, a very talkative gentleman once. He simply wrote hind legs on the back of the, the business card, as in the guy could talk, talk the hind legs off a donkey. Um, so I, was, I, I found that was always quite memorable. It's amazing what you can remember when you sort of link it uh, link it up in the right way, isn't it? Yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I love that. That's such a good connection. Yeah. <laughs> Ruby, thank you so much. It's been wonderful having you as a guest on the podcast. Um, thank you for all your great tips and great advice. We look forward to um, seeing you on the television screen or in the theatre again very soon thank you so much it's been such a pleasure i appreciate it thanks very much ruby this was the evolving enterprises podcast stories of growth and transformation thank you for listening